chapter 4, verse 5. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I picked this scripture today uh, because I've been reading the works of John Wesley. Um, John Wesley is the founder of Methodism. Uh, He's the guy who put the method in the ism, I guess. And uh, he's from a while ago, but he's an important Christian leader in a lot of ways. That the United Methodist Church traces our lineage to him. In fact, when I was ordained, they give you this poster, basically, or uh, I guess it's a certificate that tells you, you know, I was ordained by this bishop who was ordained by this bishop who was ordained all the way back to uh, John Wesley. Uh, and But John Wesley's influence is much, much broader than just uh, the United Methodist Church. There's other Methodist churches in the world. Uh, there's uh, other churches that are Wesleyan, that means in their theology, if you've ever heard of a Nazarene church, that's a sister denomination from the uh, Methodist denomination, and, and in fact, Wesley's influence went into the holiness movement and any Pentecostal church today, so even if we're the only Methodist church south uh, of 1960, there's a lot of churches that have uh, Wesleyan influence on it, and that he was an important figure to. And one of the things that I love about John Wesley is his optimism. Now, you may go, what? Optimism. If, you're, if you grew up in a Methodist church other than ours, we don't actually have this, uh, most Methodist churches have a picture of John Wesley where he's looking very stern in just kind of 17th century. We didn't paint pastors as looking at anything other than judgmental, basically. Uh, but accounts of John Wesley are that he was a very fun guy, not a mushroom, but a uh, fun guy, uh, and was, uh, was, in, was uh, enjoyable to be around and was... Uh, jovial and all sorts of things. And so uh, one of the things, though, that's distinct about John Wesley, one of the, the theology, the parts of his theology that, that he really, um, it's not that like he was the person that came up with this, but really made a big deal, was this idea of Christian perfection, that we could be made perfect in love in this life. In fact, when you get ordained, they ask you, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And, and that always trips up people these days. I mean, really, honestly, do you expect to be made perfect? What would that even mean? I I think that in many ways that just seems unreachable and unimaginable. Yet John Wesley really seemed to believe that this was something that God could do. So when I was young, as I've told some of you before, I'm a big basketball fan, still am, but when I was young, I wanted to be in the NBA. That was one of my dreams in my life. And you can guess that that I'm not particularly equipped uh, well for that particular dream. I wanted to be Magic Johnson. And I had always, and and, and back in that day, this is when basketball was kind of blowing up as a national thing, Michael Jordan, and there were all these videos that we would get and watch, and the stories that Magic Johnson would tell about was that he would be always practicing all the time in the snow. And so when you're a kid, you hear that and you think, okay, if I just practice all the time 
and I do this, then, then I can be Magic Johnson. Right? Well, I can't be Magic Johnson. And it was apparent very early on in my life, uh, when I was a very short kid, uh, and I'm not very gifted athletically, so I really had none of the requirements needed to be Magic Johnson. And so pretty early on in my life, I abandoned that dream. But sometimes I feel like when we talk about the spiritual life, particularly when we talk about things like spiritual perfection or what God could do within us, uh, then it's a little bit like asking you to be Magic Johnson. That's how it can kind of feel. It can kind of feel like an impossible thing is being asked of you. You know that phrase we always say, like, I am who I am? You know, like... Isn't the idea of just kind of accepting ourselves? Why would we? It just seems like religion might be asking us to be something that we cannot be. An impossible goal. Well, today, that's what I want to talk about. I, I want to talk about this tension, almost, in our hearts where God seems to be, and on Sunday we talk about wanting God to be the Lord of our life, to live out God's love, to be people of justice and mercy and forgiveness, and all of these things, these lofty ideals, and yet we also have to confront the truth of who we are. And how do we imagine that we can get from here to there? When I was in Germany, uh, I was an English teacher, as some of you know. So my wife, who is somewhere around here, or she was standing in the back, she's teaching, okay. Uh, she, uh, she was in graduate school uh, in a German university, so I was teaching English there. And one of the things that is kind of cool about teaching English in a place like that when you're young is that uh, you meet a lot of people, because most of the teachers are in their 20s or 30s, um, when, they, when you come to teacher training, they say, who's here for love? And most of the people raise their hand because everybody is there. Because you have to have a college education and you have to kind of be there without a plan is kind of what their English teacher uh, pool is. Uh, but one of the guys who did not raise his hand for there for love was a guy, I don't call him Dylan. Dylan was there to play American football. Now, I know some of the Aggies in their room are riding high on American football at the moment, but the, the reason I'm saying American football is because, of course, in Germany, that's what they call it because they have foosball, which we call soccer, and soccer is without a doubt the biggest sport in Germany. There is no question. Soccer is big, so big in Europe that like, they have killed referees, <laughs> you know, things like that. Like, it's insane. It's like every sport we have, if we only had one sport. So take every fanatic person for hockey, basketball, football, all of those things, baseball, and said, okay, you only have one sport that everyone cares about. And that's what you get when you get with soccer in really most of the world, but uh, very much in Germany. But he was there to play American football, and football has been trying to expand into Germany for a good long time. In fact, Jonathan Lowe told me that they are planning to play one of the NFL games in Germany, I think, next year. 
And there are American football leagues there. And it is filled with Americans. And, and Dylan was there to play this, so his dream and what he was there to do was to get into the NFL, our practice squad first and then into the NFL. And Dylan was an incredible guy, very nice guy. I'll talk about him a little bit later, but uh, about kind of some of the things that came later. But Dylan was an amazing guy, optimistic, great leader, all sorts of things. And at one level, I loved his optimism. Infectious personality to be around. Someone who's really going for a dream. On the other hand, it also was pretty sad for me. Because, you know, Dylan was better at football than probably you are better at anything in your life. And I don't say that to put anyone down. But he was really good at football. He played in a big college. You know how hard that is? And you think about what had it take, how much football was a part of his life. It had taken him up from a, from a very poor background. His family had put tons and tons of their life and energy into this, carting him from game to game, the scholarships, all of these things. Football had carried him so close to the pinnacle. And yet not enough. He's just too short, really, when it came down to it. And I would think about him, and I think he had so much of what you would want. Leadership quality, skill, dedication, optimism, all those things you would want. It just couldn't quite be there. He had worked so hard. It wasn't going to be enough. So we would go to games, we, we went to watch him play, and it was a lot of fun. He liked that I actually understood football. The Germans were just like, you just run it over there? You know, they, 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 the, the critique from Germans of American football is that you stop all the time. That's what they don't understand. They're just like, why are you stopping? Just keep on going, you know? And uh, so that would be the, the big thing. But he was fully committed to this and it was, from the outside, both inspiring and tragic in some ways. And I got to feel like that that's where a lot of people are in their spiritual life. And maybe about a lot of things. Are there things in your life, for example, that you have found that uh, uh, something in your life that you've just kind of worked for and worked for and worked for and, and then it just not appeared? You know, like the mirage of water on the road that disappears the closer you get. Is there a striving in your heart that you desired this for God and this just continually you wanted to be, to know God's peace, to know God's love, to know God's justice, to know all of these things, and you've wanted that and you've desired that and you've worked for it and you've gone to church and all of these kinds of things, and yet you just can't feel like you can make that leap. And it's like, what more can you do? 
I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say it would be a bad thing. That it, I mean, I think it would be quite a normal response that if you leave a Sunday service, you go like, that's a great idea. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. And that's because there's a part of us that just seems to just can't get there when it comes to our relationship with God. There's a, a rumbling in our heart that says, you're not enough. There's a part of us that, that can't really believe that we're loved fully. It doesn't really know how to love. There's a part of us that, that lives in, in fear that there's just not enough in the world and that we've got to have ours and, and we've got to make sure that, you know, we get it so that other people don't. And, and we can't imagine kind of living that way. We see these things and we think, great ideas, but there's just this part of us that anchors us and makes us feel like this is an insurmountable goal that we cannot overcome. And maybe you're exhausted from trying and you just can't imagine what it really looks like. Any of you ever wondered with your relationship with God, you know, am I ever going to get there? Am I ever going to be able to sing a song, a hope, a prayer, without it just being something that I say but don't quite feel? You know, that kind of striving. Well, in, in church, in, in church world, when we look at the scripture today, a little part from, from Romans, probably the most important letter from Paul, at least, one of the most important things ever written in terms of Christianity. He talks about this. He talks about how the faith of the unbeliever is reckoned as righteousness. It's church language. Righteousness is this idea of being okay with God of living a life that God wants us to live. And yet, he's juxtaposing that with someone who's ungodly, someone who has that barrier between them and God. And he's saying somehow that, that we can be this ungodly person and be made righteous. And, and then you might ask, well, then how is he dealing with this gulf that I feel in my heart between me and God? How is, how is, how is he able to bridge that? And what Paul talks about here, this idea of faith and this idea of, of Jesus himself, you know, we're not here as a Christian church with a cross on the wall because we think like, hey, it's a good idea or something like that. We're here because we believe that this is the way that, that we move from this place where we feel this striving in our heart for something that we feel like we can never attain to a place of righteousness, of feeling it. 
awakening in our heart. And so you ask, well, what, what does that mean? And, and Paul talks about these things. He doesn't say, good, you got to work harder. you got to do more. you gotta, you got to do 100 more laps in order to get to the NFL. you got to do all these things. you got to achieve this. You've got to make this. You've got to climb this. What, instead, what he begins to talk about are things like this. He says, you've got to die to yourself. Die to sin. Surrender in order to be raised with Christ. He says the same power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the same power that was at work in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, that created the empty tomb, that did the unbelievable, is at work in you. And just as we cannot imagine from death to life, in us we are moved from death to life. But it isn't a striving. It's a surrender. So I knew Dylan for several years while we were in um, Germany. And later, we would talk about religion because we were literally the only Christians we knew. It's not a, it's a very, sec Europe is very secular. And uh, so about the only Christians we knew was Southern Baptist, African-American Southern Baptist, and I was Methodist. So we would sometimes just kind of be like, how's your prayer life? You know, just kind of secretly, you know, talking to each other and things like that. And uh, one time he came in, a little spring to step, we had these lockers, and he came into the locker room, and he was happy. He was like, hey, what's up, Bill? And he said, I gave football to Jesus last night. And I was like, okay. What does that mean? And he's like, well, I gave football to Jesus last night. And so... You know, now I can see back, having been a pastor in the intervening 15 years or whatever it's been, but it's easy to see now that, that what he meant by that was that he had surrendered football and all of this that it had meant to him, his, his life, his identity, his way out of his neighborhood, who he was, what had made him special, what had made him him, all of the dreams that he had, he had surrendered that to Jesus. said, that's yours. That, that he was going to find himself in some other way. Now, it wasn't like I think he was all of a sudden like really clear on things, but I'll tell you what did happen in the time I knew him. Where before I had seen him always focused on working out and trying to figure out, you know, if people are going to see him and all of these kinds of things. He began to say, you know what? I think I'm going to be an assistant coach here. That's what he became. Started coaching there. He started talking about things like, you know, I really feel like I want to grow this game. And instead of seeing football with resentment, he started to say, you know, football was what got me out of this place in Chicago. It got me all the way to, to have a bachelor's degree. And then he did meet a German. They did fall in love. And he's like, if that was the whole trajectory of this thing, then that was something powerful in my life. And so they began, he began to see a trajectory and a hope in a way in his life 
that began when he surrendered this thing that he thought his whole life was about. That path forward. It's a Holy Spirit at work. I, I wonder what you need to surrender today. For some of you, you have surrendered your life to Christ perhaps a long ago on an altar in summer camp or something like that. And yet we all must continue to find surrender in our lives. It's, it's so easy to just try to keep on holding on tighter and tighter to the things that we think we are about. And yet we believe in a living God. A living God of resurrection. Of real living power. Not an idea, but something that moves within us. Something that guides us. Something that transforms us. And we believe in that resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That when we are dead to the, the world, we live in him. And so for us, we bridge that gap. Through him, through surrender. So whatever it is that you are seeking to surrender, in the coming moments when we have offering and music and time and over this next week, seek to give it to God.